Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 328. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I've got a really interesting subject for you today. At the time of this recording, it's July of 2020. As you all know, we're living in some pretty interesting times in this kind of COVID, hopefully soon to be post-COVID era. As real estate investors, it's up to us to stay up to date with trends, especially with how people not only live, but how they work, travel, and even vacation. And that is the subject of today's podcast with Avery Carl is short-term rentals. Now, just a few months ago, I would have thought short-term rentals like Airbnbs and VRBOs would be in serious trouble as I would synonymate those with, say, like office space. But Avery shows us why that's not necessarily the case and not the trend that she's seeing in her business. So a little bit about Avery. She bought her first rental property at the age of 26 on a $37,000 per year salary. Through investing in short-term rental properties in what she calls mature vacation rental markets, she became a millionaire by age 31. She now owns a portfolio of 29 properties, including both short-term and long-term rentals, and is the CEO and founder of The Short-Term Shop, a real estate team that helps investors just like you acquire short-term rental properties in the most recession-resistant markets and trains them on methods that led her out of the corporate rat race and into financial freedom. Lots of great stuff in today's conversation with Avery. I'm excited to talk with her and jump into it, so let's get right to it. All right, today I welcome on the show short-term rental expert Avery Carl. Avery, hey, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. We're going to be getting into short-term rentals today, Avery, and talking about your experience there. But before we do that, let's kind of back up. Tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, your background, all that good stuff. Awesome. So I'm a real estate investor, also a real estate agent. I have offices in three markets, the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. So that's the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area, the Panhandle of Florida. So Destin, Panama City, and then uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. And, um, yeah, yeah. And what I do is, so I own 29 units total. Six of them are short-term rentals, five in the Smokies and one in Destin. The rest are long-terms. And I got into real estate as an investor. I was working as a marketing manager with a corporate gig and kind of got into real estate investing as what was supposed to be just kind of a retirement plan, but then it became a side hustle and then it became the main hustle. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. became my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I became an agent because when we started buying short-term rentals, 
we bought five short-term rentals in the Smokies first and then took all of that income and rolled it into buying other properties, you know, whether that's long-terms or more short-terms. I think it's a good idea to definitely diversify that portfolio. So we buy a little of both, but I became an agent because none of the agents in the markets that I was working in or that I was trying to buy in could answer my questions about management and how much things are supposed to make and return on investment, things like that. So now I am that agent for other investors in my markets. Yeah, great. So uh, tell us about that very first deal. You're working in corporate America. You decide you want to start getting involved in real estate investing for the sake of, you know, retirement and supplementing your income, right? So what did that first deal look like for you? And then how did you kind of find yourself in the short-term rental business? Okay, sure. So we did things a little bit backwards. We bought the property first and educated ourselves later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was we were living in Nashville at the time and we had moved to Nashville from New York City. And our agent, because I wasn't licensed yet, was really trying to get us to buy in this hipster area of Nashville saying, oh, there's so much appreciation. You know, Next year, your house will be worth X amount more. And we said, no, no, we came from Brooklyn. We don't want neighbors. We want to go out in the country. So we bought out in the country. And then we thought, well, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe we can, maybe we should buy one of those places. And then when we have kids one day and they go to college, we can sell it and pay for their college, which is the totally wrong way to do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we bought one. And it's still our best performing long-term rental to date. So luckily we got, we did a really good job on the first one. And then after that, we said, okay, well, this is something we want to build and scale. And then we started educating ourselves and reading the books and listening to the podcasts. And we said, well, we have one, we got into short-term rentals because we said we have one down payment worth of capital left. So we really need to maximize this. How can we make the most money off of this down payment to where we can buy it more faster. And so we said, oh, how about an, an Airbnb? And uh, we didn't want to do it in Nashville. Nashville's terrible for Airbnbs. The regulations are crazy. They're changing all the time. And so we said, well, where can we go? We're not going to have to worry about that. And we'd just been on vacation three hours east of Nashville in the Smoky Mountains. And we said, well, everybody goes to the Smoky Mountains and rents cabins. They don't even stay in hotels. Let's check there. Regulations are super friendly. The return on investment's awesome. And then now, you know, years later, it's on all the best places to invest in short-term rental lists on rented.com and like Bacasa and everywhere. So again, just pulled the trigger. Didn't know anybody who did this. Didn't have any help, like nobody to guide us. Yeah, we right. just <laughs> flew blind right into it. That one did really well. Scaled that into five and then you know scaled that into 29 as of last Monday. So That's awesome. I love it. One thing I want to kind of highlight what you've done and repeatedly, it sounds is like jumping into it and then learning as you go, right? You're not like, you know, in this state of constant analysis paralysis, they call it, right? Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said about, you know, learning as you go, right? Like that is in a sense, education, right? So you buy this property, kind of learn as you go. I'm sure you made a ton of mistakes and you're doing things differently (laughs) than you once were. So, but that in itself is a sense in education, in my opinion. Yeah, and it really has been. You definitely do need to do your analysis up front. We did the best we could with the information that we had. There's a lot better information out there now. There's a lot I have a lot better information now than I did when we started, but you know, that's the biggest thing that keeps people from getting started in real estate investing or really, you know, anything, starting any business is just analyzing and planning and never doing. Well, let's paint a picture of what exactly these markets and these properties look like for the listeners, Avery. Is this a very big market? Is it small? What do these properties look like? Are they high-rise condos, little quaint bed and breakfasts? Like, what does this thing look like? 
It depends on the market that you choose. And you know, there are a lot of markets that can work really well for this throughout the country. The markets that I focus on, and I think the markets that have data-wise shown to be the most resilient in recessions, whether it's 2008 or whether it's the current pandemic, are the regional drivable, tourist-driven, just vacation markets. So in one sense, they're small markets, but in another sense, they're big markets. So they're small markets in terms of super small town, gets millions of visitors a year, like Smoky Mountain National Park gets 13 million visitors a year. But the Sevierville area, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, Sevierville as a whole only has like 15,000 residents, if that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's 10,000 rental properties, but you know, maybe a little, you know, roughly the same amount of permanent residents. So in that market, in the mountain markets, you're looking at single family cabins. Condos don't really work as well in the mountain markets that I've, I'm in. Some of them, I'm sure they do. And then the beach markets, you know, condos are totally cool or, you know, single family houses that are walkable to the beach is what you're looking at. Yeah. So going back to like that very first property you bought, it was a single family, I assume. It was a long-term rental. And at that time, you were trying to build up cash flow, right? And you thought, well, hey, I only have capital for another down payment. That's so many people out there's hurdle, right? Is saving up for that down payment. You really needed to maximize the return. So that kind of drove you to the short-term rental because they are stronger cash flowing investments. Is that kind of the sense of what you were going with? Yeah, that's what we were going for was they are higher cash flow. So you're making more money for the same roughly, you know, a similar property. And then the other thing about short terms is you can do if they meet a couple of requirements, like if they're at least 65 miles from where you live. And if you're not going to put a contract on it, like a lease or a property management contract to give someone else control of it, then you can do what's called a vacation home loan, not a vacation rental loan, vacation home loan. And you only have to put 10% down. So that's another way to kind of maximize that one small nut that you might have to get you into another property that's cash flowing harder than just a traditional long-term rental. So would that be like a secondary residence kind of style Mm -hmm. loan? Yeah, yeah. Vacation home, second home, different banks call them different things, but it's a Fannie Freddie conventional product. So pretty much any bank can do it. Okay. And can you only do one of those or can you have many second homes? You can do one per market. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you could do one in Gatlinburg, one in Destin, one in... Mm -hmm. I'll throw Fredericksburg, Texas out there because that's a very local short-term rental market that I'm used to. But yeah. I love Fredericksburg. Yeah. (laughs) I used to live in Austin. So you know. Oh yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You could do that. Yeah. Let's kind of talk about those markets. You know, I know you've compared different like uh, metro markets to these, what do you call like mature short-term rental markets. So Mm -hmm. compare and contrast the differences in those and why you like those mature short-term rental markets. Okay, sure. So there's roughly three types of markets that you can invest in short-term rentals. There's the regional drivable vacation rental markets that we've been talking about. There's metro markets like your Nashville's, your Austin's, New York, places like that. Uh, you know, Places that are not dependent on tourism, but still get tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but places where people have historically stayed in hotels until as of the past 15 years. Sure. And then you have your national fly to vacation rental markets. So that's your Hawaii, you know, the Colorado skiing, Disney's another big one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so, and those are dependent on tourism, but they're more of like your big lavish vacation places where most people are flying in, whereas the regional ones, people, the, the majority of tourists are driving in. And the differences are, you know, there's going to be a few regulations, each type of market. But the small town regional 
drivable ones are going to have the best regulations, the most friendly ones towards short-term rentals, because the economies are very small, but they're very, very dependent on tourism. They're very dependent on that small local occupancy tax that they have for the short-term rentals. So it would just be way too detrimental for those governments to ever regulate against them. Right. Yeah. And then the metro markets are the ones where you run into the really bad short-term rental regulations because you've got big hotel lobbyist money because trying to fight back for the market share that they've lost. You know, you have a lot of people who live in big metro markets and as people are buying properties in what used to be quiet neighborhoods and turning them into mini hotels and party houses, neighbors don't like that very much. So you have those clashes too. So lots of city council involvement in metro markets. And a lot of people that I know that own short-term rentals in metro markets and make tons of money. But to me, that's just a headache that I don't want to deal with. It's interesting how some of those smaller, more mature markets are more advanced when it comes to those regulations. They're more used to dealing with those from a city and code and regulation perspective than say like your Austin, Texas or your San Diego, California, right? Right, right. And it's because, you know, these are places where people have been, it's been the normal thing for tourists to rent a privately owned single family house or condo for decades, like well before Airbnb, even the internet in a lot of cases. So uh, it's just something that they figured out a long time ago because it's not new to them. So once you get the market kind of figured out, maybe you've identified a place where you think this model will work for you. What about any kind of property type specifically? And then let's get into kind of how you would analyze the deal from the very beginning. As long-term rental investors, you know, you've got all these kind of rules of thumb, the 1% rent to value ratio that many people are used to. But are there any kind of like, metrics you look at when analyzing a specific property? There are some loose metrics. There are not as many hard and fast like black and white metrics as there are like with long-term rentals and multifamily investing. But uh, cash on cash return is usually the best way to measure. And then another way to measure is the gross rent multiplier. So the amount of the purchase price that the property grosses people are generally the bottom number for cash on cash return is 15% to kind of, you know, make it a decent deal, but, you know, up to 40% is achievable on some of these things in some of these markets. They're not just all sitting out there on the MLS waiting to be scooped up. You have to kind of watch, but it's definitely doable. I think one maybe difference in the short-term rental versus the long-term rental analysis is on a a long-term rental, sometimes I'm looking at things from a month-by-month perspective. What does it rent per month? What are the expenses per month? But in a short-term rental, sometimes you have to annualize that because you've got like the seasonality factor, right? Summer Mm -hmm. months might be higher in some markets. Winter months might be higher in others, say, for instance, Colorado, right? So is that kind of true across the board there? Absolutely. Because every month is going to be different depending on the market and the time of year. It's really hard to measure by month. You kind of do have to go annually. Yeah, sure. Well, something I wanted to bring up too, we'll just kind of jump into it, is this demand during the time we're in right now. We're recording this in July 2020 if people are picking this up years down the road, but we're in a pretty uncertain time with the recent COVID stuff, right? And a couple months ago, I was thinking to myself, wow, short-term rentals don't seem like the place to be right now. But more and more, I'm trying to book short-term rentals for myself to go to, i.e. Fredericksburg, Texas for a weekend getaway or go out near Austin. And there's so much demand and there's not a lot of options for short-term rentals right now. I thought that was kind of surprising. So what's your take there? Yeah. So March and April sucked for you know any market, any short-term rental. As the shutdown started, everybody's calendars cleared out for March and April. Okay. 
But for the markets that I'm in, we got just enough bookings for those two months or rebookings, I should say, by people who live in big cities that are drivable, who live in small condos who are like, oh, crap, I'm going to be working from home for a month. And I live in this tiny condo. Can I come rent your place for two weeks? And so we stayed in the black because of that. Had it gone on longer, we would have had to dip into cash reserves, which is could we could do a whole nother podcast on that. <laughs> but the markets that bounce back most quickly, and this is kind of the difference between the regional drivable markets and the uh, the big national fly to markets, is that by the end of those shutdowns, everybody was busting and it still is busting to get out of their houses but they don't want to get on a flight and get breathed on. And they don't want to go to like Disney World or a big metro area and get breathed on. So they want to be in control of their own transportation in their own car. So they're driving to where they can get to, to take a vacation and get out of their houses. So we've actually seen since the beginning of May, what I would call a boom in all three of the markets that I'm in. Yeah, that's really interesting and almost counterintuitive. But once you explain it like that, it totally makes sense. I recently saw some kind of announcement by the CEO of Airbnb, Brian, I think his last name is Chesky. Chesky, (laughs) right. And he was essentially saying just that thing, like the way people travel has completely changed. Rather than getting on a flight and flying across the country to some vacation destination, they're getting their cars and driving two or three or four hours to a local, you know, kind of more regional vacation destination. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see how people's behaviors have changed, but that demand is still there for this type of short-term rental. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you talk about the difference between buying an Airbnb property and buying a short-term rental. What do each of those differences mean to you? Okay, yeah. So a vacation rental would be you know, the regional drivable vacation markets, whereas just buying an Airbnb to me is like is more of a metro market. Like, okay, I'm buying the house across the street from me and short-term renting it rather than long-term renting it. To me, that's an Airbnb. And then a vacation rental is a vacation rental. (laughs) Sure. Now, I know you've got a handful of these. Do you also help other people invest in these? In your model, are you self-managing this? Are you turning that over to a property manager? And then can you kind of compare and contrast the differences and just the day-to-day operations as compared to a long-term rental where you don't have to be in the unit every two or three days? Yeah, yeah. So I recommend self-managing with short-term rentals. I'm not anti-property manager by any means. Like I would love to hand over all of my rentals in Chattanooga to a property manager for 10%, but I just haven't found any that haven't sucked yet. So if anybody's listening and has one, hit me up. (laughs) But with the short terms, the standard split for a manager is 20% to 40% in some cases. So wow. Okay. Yeah. So and there's not a lot that they're doing that you can't do from your phone in five minutes a day other than suck all the cash flow out of the deal. Because if you have <laughs> if you have a property that's grossing $100,000 and you're paying 30%, you know that is somebody's entire salary <laughs> that your yeah. one property is paid. So what we do for our clients is you know we do the regular buyer agent thing, get you the property, you know, get you through the contract and that whole song and dance. But what our real value add is we will get you set up with all the systems and processes to so that you can self-manage from your phone from you know okay, got it. wherever you live. Yeah. And so we get you that, hooked up with the vendors and everything too. So tell us what that process looks like for you and your own portfolio. How are are you managing remotely right now? I think you mm-hmm. are, right? Yeah, yeah. So what does like a day-to-day kind of management of these short-term rentals look like for you? So my husband actually did a screen time app experiment on his phone and he found he for our six 
he was spending something like 27 minutes a week per property. That is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's really not bad at all. And it's really, I mean, you just have the Airbnb and VRBO apps on your phone. And, uh, you know, if it's really just like answering a few text messages a day. I mean, is it going to interrupt your dinner at some point? Yes, probably. Uh, you know, are people going to be annoying sometimes? Yeah. But, you know, for the amount of cash flow, it's really, you know, it's not that bothersome. And a lot of people have this limiting belief about short-term rentals that they're going to get called in the middle of the night every night about some catastrophe that's happening. But it, that really doesn't happen as much as people are afraid. It happens. Same thing with long terms. You know, people, everybody has some uncle with a horror story of somebody who like burned their house down. Right, um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's really not that bad. Across all six of ours and five years of doing it, we've maybe had four or five uh, middle of the night calls. And most of the time, there's nothing you can do anyway, but make a phone call for them. Well, you probably feel just how I do when I get this question about my long-term rentals, right? Maybe someone who's not in a real estate investor asks you like, well, what do you do when a toilet breaks or something? It's like, well, I make a call. I've never changed a toilet on any of my rental properties in Oklahoma <laughs> or the panhandle of Texas ever. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't exactly. go with it. Yeah. Or my bathroom that's you know 10 feet from here. I don't know how to do that. I call somebody <laughs> if it's in my own house. <laughs> right, right. So what's the difference? Yeah. So you can really take this short-term rental kind of model almost anywhere across the country it works because really all you need are some local contacts, a smartphone, and a little bit of time every week to devote to just kind of managing the processes. Let's talk about what kind of support you need locally. Because I mean, you have to have people to clean the place, right? I assume and maybe fix, you know, broken things as they come about. What's that look like for you? Uh, if you're in a market where you're just starting out, you don't have any contacts, your agent doesn't have any contacts for you. Your cleaner is the place to start. That's your most important person. They're going to be the people that are in the house, you know, two, three times a week sometimes. And, you know, their eyes and ears telling you what's going on with it. And generally, if you start there, you can build out. They probably know a handyman. They can tell you an HVAC technician and you can build out from there. And what I recommend doing if you're just brand new and have no connections is just going on Airbnb and VRBO and begging your neighbors to give you some contacts. Most of the time they don't want to share, but every now and then they will. That's how we got our first cleaner. I mean, we fired her in six months because she, it was a personality issue, but you know, that's sometimes the way you have to do it. You just have to go on and see who you can get to talk to you. It's a relatively lean team then. I mean, you've got cleaning staff, a handyman. It's not like you have to have, you know, a lot of boots on the ground there. It's just, you know, pretty straightforward. It sounds. Yeah, it is pretty straightforward. And that cleaner is just, you know, that's the cleaners are gold. Have you ever had any experience with like maybe turning a long-term rental into a short-term rental? Maybe somebody has a property in a market that they think might cash flow a little better as a short-term rental. Any experience converting one to the other or vice versa? Yeah, yeah. The first one that I bought actually had been a long-term rental, not because it made a lot of sense, but the owner was just really old and sickly and he didn't want to deal with it. And so he just rented it to like a I think he was a truck driver for five years. And I don't think they swept the entire time they lived there, but it was still a cabin and like what it needed to be for a short-term rental in the Smokies. And we were able to get a really good deal on it because he just wanted to unload it and hadn't seen it in five years. And uh, so we just, you know, refurnished it and got it up and going. And, you know, as long as you do your research on the market data and what th what you can expect to get and what similar properties are doing, it shouldn't be an issue to turn it into a short-term. Yeah. Okay. Here's an interesting kind of like off topic thing I'll bring up. 
as a short-term rental tenant myself, occasionally going to Fredericksburg, Texas or wherever I might be, I actually prefer a short-term rental that is a designated short-term rental. I don't want us to go to someone's home that they just taken all the family pictures and turned around on the shelves. And I feel like I'm like in someone's, you know, privacy, right? So what's your kind of take there? So that's never been something that I've ever looked into doing. And a lot of people ask me questions about doing that sometimes like, oh, I'm going to leave my house for the weekend and Airbnb it, or, you know, I'm going to Airbnb different rooms in my house. I'm looking more at investing and scaling an investment portfolio rather than just generating a little extra here and there. So, I mean, that makes me uncomfortable too, especially, you know, with COVID, you don't really want to do that now. You don't want to go be in somebody else's space. You want it to be a space that's designated for this. (laughs) Right. When I get on Airbnb or VRBO and I'm looking at places, that's kind of what I'm looking at. I'm like, does this look like a bona fide designated short-term rental or is this someone's house? They're just you know, sleeping in a tent in the backyard and letting me rent their house for the weekend, (laughs) right? Like, I don't want that necessarily. Yeah, me either. Well, what are some other kind of maybe surprising things that you've learned as you've invested in these short-term rentals that maybe you didn't know when you first got started? I mean, I'm sure a lot considering you jumped in relatively quickly, but maybe something that kind of you didn't expect. You know, I really just learned read people up front a little better. Because I think people get so caught up in wanting to be, because it is, you know, it is service industry related. People get so caught up in wanting to be a good host that, you know, maybe if somebody's asking a bunch of really stupid questions up front, stupid's maybe not a good word, but uh, (laughs) a bunch of questions that are clearly answered right there. You know, they're asking things that are indicating that they're going to be a really high maintenance guest. You want to just nip that in the bud up front and say, no, I don't think you're going to be comfortable. This, This doesn't have what you need. It's learning to separate, you know, to not just get so caught up and, oh my gosh, I'm the best host ever. Look how helpful I am. And actually using those questions to qualify them as how a good of a guest that they will be, which, you know, in turn is, are they going to leave you a good review, which is your end goal is a good review. Yeah. That's a whole interesting aspect and a big difference in the short-term rental versus long-term rentals is that kind of like reputation you have to maintain, right? So you've got people that can go on there, look at your listing, see recent reviews, which I do as a guest all the time. That's one of the big things I look at is recent reviews, right? And, you know, people kind of might give you a little tidbit more information than the description says. So how do you manage your kind of reputation online there? Uh, Really just by telling people to take a hike up front that I can tell are going to be a problem. (laughs) So what does that look like to you? I mean, obviously you can't discriminate based on like fair housing laws, but like you said, if somebody is being difficult or, you know, it just doesn't seem like they're going to work out. You just say like, Hey, sorry, it's not going to work. Yeah. So like a big indicator is people who ask to check in early. So it very clearly says in several different places on our listing, Hey, we can't allow early check-ins, especially after COVID because our cleaners need all the time that they can to make sure that everything is clean as they can. So, you know, unfortunately we can't offer early check-ins. And if they ask, and it's fine if they ask for one, but that's like the red, the first red flag. And if they don't understand why, if you say like, oh, you know, it says in our listing, actually, the cleaners need to have ample time to get everything sanitized. And then they still keep going. Then we're like, oh, well, you know, I'm really sorry. This is our policy. But if that's not cool with you, if you want to cancel, we totally get it. Yeah, we're not like, bye. You know, we try not to be mean. But if they're already not understanding that it's for their own benefit, that the cabin get as clean as possible, then they're going to be horrible the rest of the time. (laughs) Maybe questions like, hey, how many kegs can you fit inside the kitchen? Just curious. They will ask stuff like that. They (laughs) will give themselves away 
all the time. They'll say, Hey, you know, it's me and my five 23 year old buddies are coming in town for a bachelor party and your place looks awesome. And you're like, Oh no, we don't have enough room for five people. You might not be comfortable. So sorry. Have yeah, fun. Especially, especially in this two bedroom listing. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe what are some other like kind of funny horror stories or interesting experiences you've had as an Airbnb or short-term rental host? Uh, I've had a few. We've asked people to leave a couple times. The funniest one, which I've said before on on another podcast, is we got a bad review because the guest felt like if a bear broke into our cabin while they were sleeping, that they would have a slim chance of survival. (laughs) So... (laughs) He gave us a one star for that. <laughs> because you didn't bear proof the property. Uh, yeah. And which I don't know how that would be possible. You know, <laughs> there's locks on the doors. There's a lot of windows, but that's because it has a mountain view. So I guess you just have to work on your own bear safety. We'll have to make that recommendation <laughs> to Airbnb to add that as a filter you can search for bear proofed properties with a pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. Well, Avery, it's been a lot of fun talking about how you've kind of built your portfolio of short-term rentals. You're now helping people do this same thing. So tell us about what you're doing these days and what your portfolio looks like. And then in addition to that, I also want to ask you about your kind of portfolio diversity. You mentioned having some long-term rentals, some Mm short-term rentals. What's your philosophy there? Let's start with that one. Okay, let's start there. Okay, so I have 29 units total six of which are short-term rentals. The rest are long-term rentals. And they're, I would say, C-class. They're like a step above Section 8. And the reason for that is, you know, we have these short-terms that are dependent on, you know, people having a decent amount of money and tourism doing well and people being able to afford to go do vacations. But on the far other end of that spectrum, people are always going to need a six, $700 a month place to live. So we have both of those things. So now we'll do like, 10 long-term doors and then buy a short-term and then 10 and then one. That's not going to add up to what I'm about to say. But as of right now, our portfolio is like uh, a third to a fourth short-terms. And I kind of like that because the short-terms, you know, have this like turbocharged income, but then the long-terms have this stability. So, you know, a lot of people have said, well, what's your backup plan on the short-terms? You know, if the tourism industry, it takes a nosedive and the backup plan is a diverse portfolio, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You know, when you're going into a property, always looking at the exit strategy, right? So maybe with a short term rental, have you ever looked at an exit strategy of just, you know, things go south or, you know, the market's not doing as thought like I thought it would, just turning this into a long term rental? That is difficult to do in the vacation rental markets. And that's why, again, why we've chosen the markets that we've chosen. So you can, in these markets that have been so dependent on tourism for so long, there's lots of data that they have either like at the National Park Service or the Chamber of Commerce or you know cities like that have big tourism departments. And you can see exactly what happened in the last several downturns. I mean, the Smoky Mountain National Park data, you can see back to like the 60s. So you can see exactly what happened during each downturn to know how bad it can get to where you would possibly have to convert to a long term. And I haven't seen, I mean, granted, COVID had it lasted longer, we might have had to figure some things out. But I haven't seen where it's ever gotten that bad to where you would need to. Because again, it's such a cheap vacation. You know, same with COVID that people don't really want to fly anywhere. In 2008, people weren't, you know, flying to Aspen because it was too expensive, but they were still driving to the regional vacation rental markets like they are now. 
Now, when you're buying these properties, Avery, are you buying these as they're just like maybe vacant single families? Are they operating short-term rentals when you buy them? Most of them are operating short-term rentals when we buy them. Uh, We've done one kind of long burr, I would call it. We haven't refinanced it. I don't know if we will. We'll probably leave the equity there. But mostly, I would say probably three quarters of them that we bought have been short-term rentals when we bought them. So when it comes to the bank valuing this property or appraising this property, you're obviously buying it because it's an income generating business, right? It just happens to be a single family house. So are you having a hard time justifying the value you're able to pay for it from the bank? In other words, like, are you getting the appraisals you need? Because maybe this property is generating up $50,000 a year in income, but it's only going to appraise for, say, I don't know, $50,000 for a sale price. So. There's a lot that goes into that. And yes, it does have to appraise just like any other residential. So two identical properties, one's producing 20,000, one's producing 75. They're worth the same as far as the bank's concerned. Yeah, right. So, but another thing to think about is that just because they are being run as a short-term rental right now doesn't mean they're being run efficiently. A lot of the local mom and pop short-term rental management companies in these markets, and there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of big ones that have been around for decades, those guys are really resistant to using the technology that's putting them out of business, which is Airbnb and VRBO. And because of that, their numbers are significantly lower than what they would be if they were properly utilizing technology. So there's been times that, and I see it with my clients all the time, I've done it. I bought a property that was doing 25,000 a year on a local management company, and we're doing 55 with it. And really, we haven't even done any work to it. We've just put it on the proper channels. Now, from an investor perspective, do you prefer Airbnb, VRBO, or another platform over another? Or are they all pretty well the same to you? There are quite a few that you can use. We stay so booked on just the two major ones on VRBO and Airbnb that we don't complicate our lives by adding a bunch of other ones. I like Airbnb better. VRBO's interface is kind of clunky. And honestly, the guests seem to be much older and have a harder time with technology. I don't know if that's just specific to my markets. That's just what I've seen. But you know, it's they're roughly the same. We do get a lot more traffic from Airbnb than VRBO though. Yeah. Okay. Well I started to wrap up a few minutes ago, got back down (laughs) in the weeds, but let's come back up. Let's talk about what the future looks like for you. What are you trying to do? I know you just moved. Are you entering new markets? Tell us about what's going on in your life today and the outlook. Sure, sure. So All of our long-terms, except for two up to this point, have been in Chattanooga. It's been pretty difficult to find deals. I don't think we've bought anything in about six months. And it's not that we wouldn't have. It's just nothing has come up. Even the wholesaler stuff, even the off-market stuff just hasn't been interesting. So you know, now that we're living in Destin, Florida full-time, we're kind of exploring some other kind of smaller markets like that that are within, you know, a few hours of here trying to learn, you know, which would be the best. So we're trying to get into another market. And you know, we're, if we buy one thing in a market, we're going to buy 10 because once you get the system down, it makes sense. So not sure exactly which market that's going to be yet, but we're working on it. And these are going to be those kind of mature markets, I assume, is what you're looking for? Oh, these will probably be long terms. Oh, okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. We just bought the most recent short term that we bought was in Destin in February, and we did a big rehab on that. So We probably won't do any more short terms this year, maybe next year. Yeah, it's interesting because all of our conversation or most of our conversation has been tailored towards short-term rentals. 
you have the short-term shop. I mean, you're known as the short-term rental person, but mm-hmm. looking at your portfolio, like you said, maybe a third to a quarter is really short-term rentals. So you're actually really heavily involved in the long-term rental, whether that's kind of obvious or not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, my whole thing was we used all the income from those first few short-term rentals to scale into a big portfolio. And that's, there are people out there that their investment style is they're just an army of short-term rentals and that's great. And then some people just want to, you know, build up this nice snowball and roll it into some other types of real estate investments. So there's no wrong way to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Avery, hey, it's been a lot of fun. Now we're officially going to wrap up. (laughs) Let's end with a lightning round. It's a series of questions we ask every one of our guests. Are you up for it? Yeah, totally. All right. First question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? Uh, Biggest hurdle was definitely saving up that first down payment. Yeah. And then did it just take time for you or what was the uh, kind of... Yeah. Yeah. It just took a little time and the market we were in was appreciating so fast that by the time we got what we thought we needed for a down payment, values were already much higher. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I put my husband and I on a $20 a day budget each and it totally worked. I gave both of us our set of cash at the beginning of the week and it worked out well for us and we got there. So... But saving that first down payment is definitely the hardest. Yeah, I completely agree. I love the sacrifice. Well, Avery, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Waking up very early. <laughs> yeah. Uh, four thirty, five o'clock, you know, because I've got a two-year-old and, and you know, clients, everything. So anything that needs to get done that uninterrupted happens between that 5 and 7.30 hour. Only so many hours to yourself. You got to make them count, right? Yeah, right. Waver, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? I figure this will be an interesting question to ask someone like you. There's a lot of value on the BiggerPockets forums, biggerpockets.com. There's a lot of real estate investors on there who, you know, if you have any questions getting into a new market and you're like, oh, I don't really know about this. If you just go on there and do a search, there have been probably, you know, 10, 15 threads on it already and your questions are right there. So that's a pretty good resource. I also like for short-term rental specific uh, air DNA data. Yeah, I meant to ask you about that. I've surfed around on that before, looking at kind of rental rates and stuff on there, just through some of their free access software stuff. But yeah, really interesting. I'll link that in the show notes if our audience members want to check that out. Mentioning Bigger Pockets, I actually listened to your Bigger Pockets interview on episode, I think it was 364 this morning. Great stuff there. And I think you've been on too. Is that right? That is right. Yeah, awesome. So we'll link both of those if the audience members want to hear more about you and listen to more uh, content. Awesome. Thanks. Well, Avery, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? I would recommend the Long Distance Real Estate Investing book by David Green. Yeah, good one. Yeah. And I would recommend that because, you know, you can't always live where the best investment is, especially, you know, if you live in a big city like New York or the Bay Area and real estate is very expensive. So a lot of times you do have to invest out of state and, you know, short term rental as well. So that's a really good one. Answers a lot of questions about, you know, investing out of state and what you need to look for. So that's a really valuable book. Yeah, awesome. We'll link that book in our show notes for audience members to check out if they haven't yet. Last question in the lightning around, Avery. If you're to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self, which you almost did, getting started investing in real estate, what would that be? I would have told myself to get started sooner. I told you that I lived in Austin. I went to school in Austin at UT and I was bartending at the Jackalope on 6th Street. And a lot of the older bartenders were buying houses just across 35 in East Nashville for like $60,000, $70,000. And 
I totally could have gotten one. And I was like, no, why would I do that? It's not as nice as my parents' house. I'm not going to buy a house until I grow up and have kids. And then those same people were selling them for half a million dollars, not three years later. Pretty good gig for a bartender, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, Avery, hey, it's been a lot of fun having you on the podcast, talking about how you've been able to scale your portfolio of both short-term and long-term rentals. If people are interested in this model, want to reach out, connect with you, maybe learn more about this thing, where's the best place for them to do that and find you? My website, the shorttermshop.com. And there's a phone number right on there. You could text me right there or send me an email. The email's right there at the top too, info at the shorttermshop.com. Awesome. Great. That's the shorttermshop.com. We'll link that in the show notes. Avery, hey, as we're wrapping up here, any parting piece of advice would you like to leave with the audience members? I think my best advice would just be to pull the trigger. I love it. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Avery, hey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Avery Carl. Hey, I hope you got so much information from that podcast and that conversation. If you want to learn more about short-term rentals or reach out and connect with Avery, you can find all of the contact information along with all the resources we mentioned in the show notes. This week's episode was brought to you by Ayers Acquisitions. Ayers Acquisitions is a real estate investment company that acquires cash-flowing real estate in emerging markets. With a focus on multifamily investments, Ayers Acquisitions seeks value-add opportunities in recession-resistant markets and properties that generate strong returns for our qualified investors. To learn more about investment strategies and processes, visit www.airsacquisitions.com. From there, you can schedule a call with me personally to connect further. Well, as always, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.